You're listening to a sermon preached at Redeeming Life Church. There are a lot of new faces in here. Welcome. I don't normally introduce myself, but I almost feel like it's necessary. Hi, I'm Pastor Brian. That was Pastor Josiah. Thank you for joining us. I think you picked a good week to do so. We're going to be in Romans 11. Uh, we're looking at the, the wonderful doxology, which is the, the praise or the worship, or you could call it a hymn of praise, in verses 33 through 36. And I want to let you know before we begin that I'm in real trouble. Uh, and I just made eye contact with the translator, and she sees that I'm off my script already. <laughs> Preaching God's Word means that the preacher studies, and the preacher fills up, and the preacher lets this word impact him and do something to him first that he can then bring back. It's like he's going down into a mine, he's doing the hard work, he's pulling up great gems, he's going, wow, and then he gets to come here and go, check it out, look at this, you get to have this. All right, so it's got to work on me first, and the problem is, I'm really sorry for all the Ukrainians who cannot follow what's happening. That is the problem we're going to talk about here. The problem is we have a bunch of Ukrainians here. That's a good thing, but it has to it forces the sermon to have to be constrained a little bit to a manuscript so that those who have the earpieces can understand what's being said and if I were just to run free off script a whole group of people would be lost. And that wouldn't be honoring to God, right? So, normally this is no problem. I have zero problem preaching from a manuscript. But this morning, I feel very constrained because what we're about to see is what happens when theology produces an outburst of worship. And I feel like the sermon, I, I desperately just wish the sermon could really model that. And so, before we, before we turn to God's Word, I'm just apologizing in advance to all of the Ukrainians if I just end up off completely... And, and Maria has to work really hard to try to figure out what I'm saying and translate that as fast as she can. Uh, I probably speak too fast for the translators. That's probably going to happen again today. This is really exciting and profound stuff. So why don't we turn our attention to God's Word now. Romans 11, verses 33 through 36. Oh, the depth of the riches of both wisdom... And of the knowledge of God, how unsearchable his judgments, how untraceable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? And who has ever given to God that he should be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, as we... Seek to plumb the depths of these riches. As we, Lord, long to see you, God, I'm, I'm begging you, please show yourself, show your glory, show us your majesty, show us your beauty. And Lord, do it through what you've been saying in your word, what we've been studying through, what you have inspired in Paul and Romans. God, I'm just asking that we would just get just a glimpse just a glimpse, Lord, on this side of eternity. Lord, help me to preach this word well and stay somewhat confined so that we don't lose the room 
Lord, thank you for your word being preached in multiple languages. Thank you, Lord, that you're bringing people from all, all tongues, tribes, nations, that you're doing a work. I would ask, Lord, please save people from all walks of life. Lord, all language groups, all people groups, Lord, and I'm asking that you would do it even this morning in this space by the preaching of your word and by the power of how beautiful and how wonderful and how rich you are. It's in Jesus' name. Amen. So, uh, there's a danger, a danger in giving an entire Sunday to preaching this beautiful doxology. Some preachers will just include it in the the previous section and just kind of have it as an add-on and they'll just keep on rolling. Other preachers uh, will take a very different approach like Martin Lloyd-Jones who took three Sundays to deal with just these four verses. I really like that guy. Um, (laughs) There are just some different things we can do here. The, the, The concern, I suppose, is that you may see this as just a standalone scripture. If we just give one whole Sunday to this, you might see it separated from the context in which it just came. And you might just take it on its own as if it belongs in the Psalms and not in the book of Romans. So I'm a little concerned that may happen. Um, You might conclude that Paul has finished laying out his theological argument, the intellectual argument, and uh, and now um, being totally relieved that that's behind him. He bursts into worship, and now he's going to shift gears which would not be correct. Or, uh, even worse still, you might conclude that Paul is now shutting off his mind and turning on his heart, and he's just going to keep writing. Right? You can find everything I just shared with you in various commentators. They've made these arguments. You can read them in the commentaries, but not in the good commentaries. Those are, are not what's happening here. See, when we read this passage in its proper context, in in the book in which it's contained, in the argument that's been going, it becomes crystal clear that Paul is concluding his explanation of the gospel and now moving to the application of the gospel. So like if you just look at your Bible, at, uh, by the way, if you're using one of those pew Bibles, um, one of the Bibles somewhere around you, the church Bible, that's on page 1006, or if you're using the version Bible app, we have an event, and in there I have all these scriptures, and there's a lot of them coming, so you can Walk through it that way, if that is your preference. Uh, Anyway, 12.1. He starts with, therefore, which it quickly becomes apparent as he does this, that he's making a a shift, right? Uh, The riches that he mentions in that verse uh, take us back to Romans, or excuse me, in the verses we just read, take us back to Romans 2.4, where we see the riches, um, God's judgment in what we have just read takes us back to Romans 2, 1 through 5. And then he's asking about the mind of God and who could have this right mind that God has delivered to us in contrast to what he says in Romans 1, 28, when he says God has delivered the fools over to a corrupt mind. These things, they tie together. It's coming out of what he's just been saying. Also, it would be extremely difficult to imagine Paul, after reading through this, to think that Paul didn't just love the value of communicating good and right theology in his explanation. It's just what he does. It's it's who he is, right? He talks about 
the gospel as information and the gospel as application, and here we see the gospel as worship. So to say that when he says like, oh, wow, oh, the depth and the riches, oh, to say that he's, um, he's doing something totally different than what he's been doing completely misses who Paul is. It completely misses his teaching and his modeling and, and saying, follow me as I follow Christ. Right? He's not doing anything different here than he's been doing. Now, it might be indented in poetry in your Bible, but he's still quoting Scripture here, just like he did throughout all of this book so far. And he's still teaching good theology, just like he has done. And just because he happens to be poetry, and just because Paul happens to be quick to quote poetry, but slow to write poetry, which I can relate to that, doesn't mean that he's not doing what he's been doing. He's laying out an argument. He's teaching. He's instructing. And now he's compelling and trying to say, look, you've got to see this. He's been doing both of these things all along. And here's the misstep that that some people will, will take this to be that really gets under my skin and drives me crazy. People will argue somehow with these verses that Paul can somehow separate his mind from his heart. Or that he can somehow separate his theology, the study of God, who he is and how he understands him, from his doxology, which is worship. Doxology is our praise and worship. And they say he can separate these two things. He can separate his mind and his heart. He can separate his understanding from his reactions and behaviors. And none of this... none of this is right because it is the theology that has led Paul to his doxology. It is what he believes about God who has led him to what he is um, and how he is worshiping. We can't compartmentalize them. Correct theology produces correct doxology. In other words, right doctrine leads to right worship. So before we look at the, the theology that Paul is addressing here, I actually really want to try to help us get our understanding around how we understand God and how we worship God and how those fit together. Okay, and then we'll explore the theology that he's provided. He'll, we'll explore what he's given to us here. And then I want to conclude for us just some challenges that I think this section of Scripture should really compel us towards. It should move us to those things. Okay, but first, we need to deal with this question. How does correct theology lead to correct worship? I don't think we ask the question enough. I really really don't think we stop when we show up here and go, "How how does the relationship between theology and our worship work? What's there? Right? The conclusion of Paul's argument here suggests that right doctrine going through all that doctrine, should, should be genuine or produce genuine worship. It should produce some kind of a response. It's not for nothing. It's for something. We're going to look at this a little bit more next week when we get to the next section of, of Romans here, but if you would just look for a moment with me, and I think it'll be on the screen, Romans uh, chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. It says, Therefore, brothers and sisters, in view of the mercies of God... I urge you to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true worship. Do not be conformed to this age, 
but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may discern what is the good, pleasing, and perfect will of God. Especially notice, notice that it's, it's within our true worship that we should be transformed. It's in view of God that we should be conformed to God. How? I said by the renewing of our mind. By the renewing of our mind, it informs our action. And then it is by this uh, renewing that helps us to know what is the good and the pleasing and the perfect will of God. Our true worship, it involves correctly understanding who God is. It's correct knowledge of God. And that correct knowledge is going to lead to correct behavior. And then that correct behavior pleases God. Sometimes um, we'll see something really amazing about God. Like something that's really true. That's really remarkable. That's really beautiful. And then what will happen is it will just kind of well up in us and just bubble over. To the point where it's like a rolling boil and it just comes out and we have a burst of praise and emotion. And we just, we just want to say, wow, wow. That's what's happening here in 11, verses 33 through 36. Okay, it's like seeing a beautiful sunset, right? Paul is going along, he's seeing the majesty of God. And it's like seeing a sunset on the ocean. Those of us who are from here don't get to see a lot of sunsets on the ocean, and when you see the good one, real beautiful one, what's the response? Wow. Wow. <clears throat> I remember being, uh, I can't remember if we were in Oregon or California, but I was trying to take a picture of the sunset and trying to get the timing right, and there's always clouds. And at one point, I noticed I was standing there like this. Oh, my picture. <laughs> wow. Wow. Or it's like when people come to Utah, maybe for the first time, and we'll have mission teams come, and, I, and they're going to come in July, and the same thing's going to happen that always happens. They get off the plane, they show up here, whatever, and they're just going, wow, you get to live by all these mountains. Wow. Okay, but it's so much more than that when we get to encounter the majesty and the glory and the beauty of God. That's what's happening. It's an oh, wow moment. I mean, sometimes we'll be singing together in here. Um, if you're a guest here, don't freak out if this should ever happen in here. But we'll be singing along. Usually it's about something about Jesus defeating death or just something. And all of a sudden from behind me, I just y'all just burst out cheering with clapping. I'm like, what just happened? There's a moment where suddenly it's just that. Yes. Wow. And it's just this overwhelming outpouring of the truth that's transformed us inside. It's just this oh wow moment. Now, <clears throat> what I've just told you is it's right theology that produces this, so we have to be careful. We can't just put all of our focus and all of our attention on filling up our heads and reading all the theology books. And there's a lot of them out there. I got a lot of them on the shelf, and, and you get the biggest books and you fill your head up. We have to be really careful because we need to make sure that when we study, that we're doing it with the right focus that we are correctly orienting ourselves toward right knowledge that leads to right worship that drives our actions correctly. So there's a book, I think it's on my son's shelf uh, right now, called Everyone's a Theologian by R.C. Sproul. Great book. In that book, he says this. 
The purpose of our theology is not to tickle our intellects, but to instruct us in the ways of God so that we can grow up into maturity and fullness of obedience to Him. That process involves not only learning, but also doing. So the risk that we have here is being out of balance, of having all this knowledge that maybe doesn't lead to action, or sometimes you have all this action that's not based on knowledge, right? But our doctrine has to lead our worship. Our, Our doctrine drives our doxology, right? But this cuts both ways, just filling up our head, or this goes both ways. We need both. We need them in balance, and we need them in proper balance. There's a, there's a huge difference between um, a natural response to God's truth, to God's revelation, that just comes out versus a forced emotional outburst that uh, we think is expected, that we do when we come into the context of maybe worship. Right? And a manipulated, forced outcome doesn't honor God. It does the opposite. What we think we're doing is actually doing the exact opposite. It's flippant, and it's not based on His truth, and it's wrong. So maybe you visited a church. Uh, unfortunately, I have um, from time to time where correct theology has just flown out the window. Right? It's, just, it's gone, and you can tell immediately by just the absurdity of the worship behavior and the fellowship and the demeanor and the attitude. It's all forced and manipulated, and you can say something's not built on truth here. Right? Right doctrine should lead to right worship. Wrong doctrine leads to bad, emotionally forced, manipulative worship. It's just, it's just what it is. Of course, sometimes, and sadly this is also the case, you can visit a church where you find the exact opposite of the misbalance. You show up, and, you, and I've visited these churches too, and it's so one-sided, so focused on learning the right material and the right stuff, and it's super heavily focused on the doctrine, and there's actually no meaningful response. There's no meaningful worship. A lot of times there's not even application, and, and I just filled my head up, right? There's the preached word, but there's nothing I need to do from it than just know a bunch of stuff. Okay, that's really just as problematic as the hyper-emotional stuff. They're both on the wrong spectrums, right? One throws the Bible in the trash, the other throws worship in the trash. We need balance with these things, and the Bible should lead us to it. I'm doing the cardinal no-no for preaching. I'm actually going to build an illustration off another illustration. (laughs) My son has these bobblehead figures, uh, Funko Pops or whatever they're called, like it's Superman and Batman and Star Wars people and whoever, right? These, these bobblehead figures all sit on his shelf. You know, really big bobbly head, little tiny body, right? They, they make these not only for kids, they make them for adults. I don't have one, but they make Luther and Spurgeon or whatever. Giant head, little tiny body. That's what it's like when we just fill our heads with theology, but we don't allow the theology to transform us into right action, true worship. Okay, we don't want to be bobbleheads, but neither do we want to be bobble bodies. Okay, really small head, 
really giant body. Okay, we don't, we don't want that either. Okay, that's the opposite problem. That's action built on misinformation and untruth. Right, it's unbiblical and, it, and it's heretical. It's not shaped by or conformed by the word of God. So we need balance. We need balance. I hope I've really made that clear with illustration upon illustration. <laughs> Paul and his worship here and his praise and this, this outburst in his writing is a wonderful example of what happens when right theology, good doctrine, leads to right doxology, right, right worship. Paul's a really good example of that. Here's an exercise you can do later. I'd love to do it this morning, but I'll run out of time. You can go through all of Paul's corpus, all of his writing here, and I want you to pay very close attention to every time he says the word amen. Note what just came before. Note what he's been saying. Note what's coming out of him, and especially notice it when it's not right at the end of a letter. When it's in the middle of a letter like what we have here in Romans, take a look at those things. Uh, what you see is rich knowledge leading to just this, this beautiful outburst. Paul has seen the, the mercy and the glory and the majesty and the wonder and the grace of our God, and he can't do anything to contain it. It just comes out of him in joy, in praise. Okay, I'm going to do this really quickly. You can go back and find the video or find the, the U version app, or maybe I'll post it on Realm later, but I'm going to give you all the places. Sorry for you note takers. I'm going to go fast. Romans 125, 95, 1136, 1533, and 1627. Galatians 1, 5, and 9, uh, 618. Ephesians 321. Philippians 420. 1 Thessalonians 312. 1 Timothy 117 and 616. These are all the places when Paul bursts out into praise. Just bursts out into glorious joy in praising the Lord because of truth. We can learn a lot from Paul in this. Right theology produces right doxology. Okay, but now we have this one in front of us. I'm running out of time, so i got to get to this. We have Paul's outburst of joy in theology, and he gives us so much here. I just want to read it again. If you would turn again to Romans 11, 33 through 36, you're going to see a difference, I think, on the screen. I'm not sure. And maybe in your Bible, even if it's CSB, then what I'm going to read, we'll talk about it in a minute. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of wisdom and of the knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments and untraceable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? And who has ever given to God that he should be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. I might have saw, I don't know, I wasn't following along, depends on which year, the CSB. You might have noticed a translational difference in verse 33. Uh, maybe in the Bible you're reading, there's a translational difference. That's because there's a ton of ambiguity here. I feel like I should probably address the ambiguity. It's a really difficult translational issue. Uh, the question here is, is whether the depth of the riches, is it the depth of riches, or is the riches the wisdom and the knowledge, or is it the depth of the wisdom, the depth of the riches, the depth of the knowledge, or is it one of the other things? Okay, there's, you open up any commentator, and they all want to just deal with that for eight pages. It doesn't change a thing. It doesn't change a single thing. We get the point that Paul is making. 
He's saying, oh, wow. Whoa, look at that. Behold our God. Woo! (laughs) The depths of the riches could be the riches that Paul's already written about. In, uh, in Romans, he's already referred to the riches of God's kindness, and he's referred to the riches of God's glory. It could be that he's talking about that, or it could be to the riches of knowledge and wisdom. In Ephesians, he says it's the riches of God's grace. So we've got kindness, glory, knowledge, wisdom, all these possibilities. And in all these places, he's pointing us that it's, th- it's through Christ. So no matter how we translate it, there's no bottom to God's well on wisdom and on knowledge and on kindness and on grace, you'll never find the bottom of that well. Oh, wow. Wow. The first verse is a couplet. They go together. The second parts help to help us see the, and understand how they fit. So you look at the depth of wisdom and knowledge. It's not a rope long enough to reach to the bottom. You can't measure it. You can't find the bottom of that. You can't even get your head around it. And then it says, His judgments are unsearchable, and God's ways are untraceable. Now, before you think untraceable, and you go to like your CSI, whatever, and you can't trace this, it's not that kind of untraceable. It's like I can't follow the line of the master plan because it's so complex. It's, it's, it's like incomprehensible. That's what he's meaning there. His judgments are unsearchable. You can't find the bottom of it. You can't find the top. You can't find the sides. His ways are untraceable. We as finite creatures, we can't fully grasp God's wisdom. There's no way to do it. We can't fully grasp his judgment. We can't fully grasp his ways and what he's doing. We can't do it. They're all together too amazing for our tiny little brains. And it should blow our minds. And to prove just how much we can't fully grasp what God is doing, Paul, in Paul-like fashion, quotes the Old Testament. And you go back there and you read, he says, For who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has been his counselor, and who has ever given God that we should be repaid? These lines come from Job 41.11, which is awesome. Isaiah 40.13, Jeremiah 23.18, and all those places, what we see is that God is really big, and we are really small, right? God is overwhelming, and we are underwhelming. God is magnificent, and we are his creation. And everything, we can't really get our head around it. He knows everything. His ways are perfect. He has everything. We have nothing. Okay, but that's not the reason to run away. It's not the reason to get scared. It's not the reason to get angry with God. It's the reason we worship and praise Him. The point Paul is making is is if there was anybody who could offer God some kind of counsel, that person would be smarter than God. If there was a person who had something that God didn't have, God would owe that person something. He's saying that doesn't exist. And when we see that, oh, wow, the riches, the depth. Wow. It should move us to worship. And then Paul offers this really concise, packed statement about God's total sovereignty. And sometimes I think we just read over it um, because we just see prepositions and we don't realize the magnitude of what's here. We're never going to see the magnitude of what's here, but here's how it goes. It's verse 36. For 
As if to say, we've talked about this before, we go back up and look and see. Is he saying all of this? So for all of what I just said, is he saying this little hymn of praise, verses 33 through 35? Is he saying all of this is because of what I just said in Romans 11? Or maybe he's saying, hey, for or all of this that I've just said is all because of Romans 9 through 11? I hold that the word for in verse 36 points us back to all of Romans 1 through 11. All that he has just shown us, all that he has just explained to us, all the theology, all the gospel, everything that he has just said, all of it. He's saying this next line is because of all of that, all the hard stuff, all the stuff we have a hard time getting our head around, stuff about debased minds and people running around like crazies and and justification, and, and election, and salvation, and what do we do with the Jewish people? What about these people? All the stuff that we've been wrestling through. He's saying all of this, all your questions of why, all your questions of how, he's saying all of that. This is, what he's about to say includes all of that stuff. <clears throat> it's like here in this one sentence, it's like the moment in the book of Job, and the ladies are studying Job, my wife and I are studying Job, we're talking about it. It's like that moment in the book of Job when all the ding-dong friends have been telling them all kinds of stuff, but then God shows up. God gets to speak, and what does Job do? I'm an idiot. I'm going to put my hands over my mouth and stop talking. That's what this is right here. For from him... And through him and to him are all things. Or that last two could be for him. All things, everything, all creation, all glory, everything that happens, all wisdom, all knowledge, all love and beauty, all things. All the way down to the littlest, tiniest ladybug larva that I just learned this week, what that looks like. All the way up to every amazing picture you ever see of the universe all things now let's talk about all those things they're all from him all things from him means everything was created by god everything everything is god's possession he owns all of it not just the cattle on a thousand hills but everything else too. God owns everything. God is the source of everything, the creator of everything. Anything you can even possibly imagine or come up with or list, God created it and it's his. All things. They're all from him. Then it says they're all through him. That means that God is the sustainer. Everything has come through him. He keeps his created order in existence. He's holding it together. Everything comes through him. Anything that's ever existed has had to come by way of him, through him. It surrenders to him. Nothing does anything without going through God first. And that includes Satan. Don't forget that. God is sovereign. He is in control of everything. He's the mover. He's the one who moves things. Not just the first mover, if you read theology, but all movement. God is the mover because all things come through him. He directs everything. He makes everything happen. 
And then finally it says to him. All things are to him, or if it's easier, all things are for him. That means all of this, all that we see, all that we're doing, all of the actions, everything that ever was, everything that ever is, everything that ever is going to be, is for God. All of his purposes are all for his pleasure. He's coordinating and orchestrating it all for his will, for his good, for his glory. It's all about God, and it's all God's. For from him and through him and to him are all things. All things. And this is why God deserves all of our worship forever. This is why when we read truth, we should burst out in joy and praise. So, as I wrap this up, do you see how getting our theology right and understanding who God is, who he says he is, not who, not who we try to make him be, not who we try to conform him to be, not our will, not our wishes, but who he says he is, do you see how when we know him like that, and when we encounter him like that, and when we experience him like that, we're actually able to love him correctly, better, and more. Knowing him better helps us love him more. And then when we love him more, we worship him more correctly in how he would have us worship him. And we praise him all within the confines of truth. So based on what we've seen this morning, I think there should be some challenging thoughts we should have. First, we need to let this section of Scripture, Romans eleven thirty three through 36, encourage us to respond to right theology by worshiping God. Now, that sounds really silly, but we struggle with this. For some of you, that might mean you need to give yourself to a little more study. You need to dig in. You need to read His Word. You need to know Him. You need not be afraid of that. Right? You might need to learn a little more doctrine. Some of you are so afraid of that word, you might need to learn some doctrine, right? That's going to help us to know God better. We have Sunday morning classes at 9.30. Come join one. we got three new ones starting in July. Come be a part. Rome's got some information on those, right? Come make a little effort to know God better. Get into a group, a midweek group, something, read, study, do some devotional work. Set yourself to know God better because the result will be that you love Him more and you worship Him well. I'm also happy to recommend resources to you. Most of you know I have a website. There's books, resources, classes, podcasts. That stuff will help you learn God better. Come talk to me. I'll tell you about... I mean, anybody who's ever come and talked to me with a question walks away with a book recommendation, right? That's just how we roll. Let's study, let's learn. Okay, but some of you, you need to actually respond by allowing what you're learning to move from your noggin to your heart, be pumped throughout your body to your head and your hands and your feet and everything else. You need to actually take what you're learning and put application to it. You need to start acting. You need to take a step. You need to take a little courage. We want those bobble heads and bobble bodies to come into balance. This section of text should also remind us that worship without rea- with uh, right theology, if we worship without correct theology, is idolatry. And idolatry is a sin. And theology without worship is idolatry. And that's a sin. We cannot make knowledge or action our God. 
Knowledge and action lead us to worship our God, and we need them both. And finally, there's a lot of you in here I haven't met. Some of you have. And if you're in here and you don't know God at all, then you're not worshiping Him correctly. Just being spiritual isn't going to help you here. You need to know God and worship God. And if you haven't surrendered your life to Him, if you haven't given yourself over to Him, I want to encourage you to do that. Know this God. Know this Creator. He's making every way possible for you to know Him and to love Him and to praise Him. I just want to encourage you, if you don't, come talk to me. Come talk to somebody you came with here. Make an appointment with me this week. Come talk with me right after. We'll be standing in the lobby. Talk to Pastor Josiah. Talk to, talk to somebody and say, what must I do to know this God? We'll start a discipleship relationship. We'll open the Bible. We'll walk through this. We'll talk through this. We'll work it out. So that you can join in worshiping this wonderful, great God. And here's why. Because right doctrine produces right doxology. So church, let's get our theology right and our worship right so that we can worship and praise the Lord in spirit and in truth. Let's pray. God, I thank you for your word. I thank you that your word produces action, and I'm asking and begging, Lord, that that your word, your truth, would produce action in us. And now, immediately now, we're going to respond by taking the Lord's Supper, sing another song. God, it's my, my humble request that you would move each and every one of us, that that wouldn't be an empty action that it would be an action based on what we've heard, a reaction, a response to what we've seen, what you've been speaking to us here, the things maybe through the week we've been engaged in. Lord, help us to be people who worship in spirit and in truth to know you better, Lord, and to love you more. It's in Jesus' name. Amen. We'd love to have you as our guest. For more information, visit redeeminglifeutah.org.